Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making Talk with me, James Holland. And today we've got two very special guests. We've got Hallie Rubenhold and Professor Julia Late. And um, Hallie needs little introduction. She, of course, is the award-winning, best-selling author of Five about the, the Ripper victims. And Julia, you are professor um, at the History and Archaeology Department at Birkbeck University and um, an expert in prostitution at that aspect of women's lives. And you've just started a new podcast series, haven't you, which is The Blackout Ripper, um, produced by Pushkin Productions and... You also called yourself, the, the title is also subtitled, well, the main title is Bad Women, isn't it? And then colon, the blackout ripper. So why why bad women? Because I kind of thought women were supposed to be the good ones in this. Well, I mean, it's kind of an ironic title. So um, bad women is what we, we, we take. So basically, the first season that we, this is our second season. So our, the first season was off the back of my book the five which was yeah. about the five victims of jack the ripper and looking at their lives and looking at how women historically have been demonized for crimes that were perpetrated against them um so they were victim blamed um and so if a, a, a woman strayed off the path of virtue if she wasn't a perfect wife a m- perfect mother perfect daughter she didn't do what women were supposed to do during that time she was called a bad woman and that's often how we have remembered them historically and mm-hmm. and especially in true crime that's how women are often remembered so we're kind of turning this idea of bad women on its head yep. and and in this sense- well and you did that you did that brilliantly with five didn't you i mean and that was sort of the whole point was to turn these people that had always just been the victims uh, and turning them back into kind of flesh and blood and real people again well that's that's yes absolutely and, and you know and i think history really deserves that sort of treatment you know the people who have been demonized the most deserve really the most examination and we need to ask well why have these people been demonized and um and what else can be said about them and how can we help to understand their story in another context. And that's what we're doing with this second season of the podcast, which uh, is set in London during the Blitz in February 1942. Right. And Julia, just before we get into the deep, you know, into the, into kind of that's that sort of dark story, um, both actual and metaphoric. I mean, how did you two get together and, and, and how how do you know each other? Hallie and I actually got to know each other being interviewed, I believe, for a BBC radio show about sexual labor. And we both realized that we had very similar opinions about um, its place in history, about the importance of it as a social phenomenon and yep. about the women involved. And, and but, but tell me, I mean, how did you get drawn into this subject in the first place? I got drawn in probably by thinking about all the different depictions of prostitution in Victorian Britain. Yep. So that's where I got started thinking about um, the role of the quote unquote prostitute um, in Victorian popular culture and how that image got recycled in, in the histories that followed. Sure. And so I started thinking about, you know, what was what was the real experience of women who sold sex in this period? And then I started working on it and I realized that there was a story to be told Mm. going from the late Victorian period when they first started cracking down on prostitution um, and going right up to just past the Second World War when the modern laws that we live with today were passed. Right. Well, I mean, obviously... (laughs) Second World War is very much my field and this and, and the, the kind of the backdrop to this podcast. I mean, it's interesting because I'm doing I'm doing some work on the Italian campaign at the moment and the levels of prostitution are, are jaw droppingly awful. And um, I've come across this account by the medical, the chief medical officer of the U.S. Fifth Army uh, writing in the middle of 1944. And he says, says um, our estimation is that 50 percent of all available women have VD. 
Fifty percent of all available women. So, so what, what, what's that? That sort of sixteen to sixty, let's say. There's so much to unpack there. <laughs> I am absolutely promise you we're going to get onto the blackout ripper, but 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 you know while I've got you, I mean that's that's. I mean, that's some statistic, isn't it? And of course, you know, a lot of the Italian blokes are away. They're either in prison of war or they've, they've ended up in Germany as, as effectively slave labor of the, of, of, of the Germans or they're dead or, or wounded or whatever. So there's not many men around. Um, there's rabid inflation. There's huge black markets going on. And, you know, they've got no choice. They've got, you know, what, what, what do you do? I mean, you know, and they're doing it in returns for kind of tins of, of, of fruit and syrup, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, because the they've got to make ends meet. They got to, they've got to feed their children. They got to they've got to survive. That that's definitely part of the story. Um, the amount of what you know, modern day commentators would call survival sex work during the Second World War. But um, and it's important, I think, to distinguish that from um, women who are selling sex more regularly, kind of as part of their their, their main job. But what the word that really struck me was available available women i would really love to get inside the head of whoever wrote that and ask what do you mean by available yeah well women? i don't know what he means by available. I can <laughs> does guess he mean unmarried women does he mean the women who are hanging around the military barracks does he mean the women who he deems to be a quote-unquote available and yeah. what's also really interesting there is that the commentary is on how many women have venereal disease rather than on how many men because of course it takes two to ten. Well, y- y- yes, and, and it's a massive problem. It is a massive problem. And how accurate that statistic actually is? I mean, well, how... I, I, I don't think any of it. I don't think it is accurate. Uh, I think it's a it, it's a ballpark. But 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 even if he's remotely close, you see, what, when I read that, I just thought that is absolutely horrific. That's mm-hmm. horrific. And and you know, your first thought is those poor women who are in that situation where they're, they're getting VD from, I mean, I, my major reaction is they're getting it all from, from the American troops and British troops and allied troops that are out there. That, I, you know, I mean, I mean, you talk about victims. I mean, that, that's what I was thinking. That was my immediate reaction when I came across that, was what, what, a, what an absolute horror story. And how in the narrative of the Second World War, it's, it's, it's civilians who always come out least least well in in terms of their story being told and obviously that that's improved as as years have gone by and we now think about the displaced people and all the bombings in 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 Europe and all the rest of it and obviously the holocaust but the point is is that italian part of the italian population these are the bits behind the allied lines they're not in the behind the axis lines they're behind the allied lines you know the, the allies are supposed to be the good guys you know they're supposed to be the guys who are liberating europe and yet actually what they're bringing is this typhoon of steel in terms of kind of destruction and bombardments and all the rest of it but they're also bringing another kind of misery which is rife black markets rampant inflation you know bad exchange rates with the italian lira vast amounts of venereal disease and sexually transmitted diseases and 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 so on and and it's a kind of an aspect that you one doesn't think about too often and and i think you know should be thought about more i i wonder i wonder julia if um uh i mean james are you familiar with regulation 33b that was no. passed here. That I think Julia should school you in this and give you some a little bit of perspective of what was going on here at that time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, I absolutely want to hear that, but I I don't want to kind of um, deny our audience the story. Well, we'll, we'll get we'll get to everything. We'll, well get this, to is, everything. this is part of this is part of the story. Okay, come on then. Tell, tell no, me about was, Regulation Thirty Three B. Well, I was going to start actually picking up on a few of the points you made about about Italy and about um you know the way we tell the story of the Second World War and who who gets remembered as the victims, who gets remembered as the villains. Um, to make the point of you know, how little we write about the absolute integral kind of connections between commercial sex and militarism and war making and how how completely entangled these things are. Right. Because when the military officers are writing, be they based in London or, or based in, in, in Italy or based in the United States, when they're writing about venereal disease and how worried they are about it, it's, it's not with the well-being of the women in mind. They no. implicitly understand, or they, 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 they think they understand, that sex is part of war. And that yep. if they don't allow their soldiers to access, quote-unquote, 
available women, then, um, then, you know, all hell's going to break loose. And so this is, you know, the first world war, the second world war, even um, later wars, it's, it's just part of the sort of thought process of commanding officers. We have to let prostitution happen. And yep. in order to let it happen, we have to pass regulations and rules that try at least to make it quote unquote safe for men. And that's where all of these regulations about um, passing, you know, contact tracing about criminalizing the spread of VD come in. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's a part of the, the, the book I'm doing at the moment. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to unpick this and trying to get to the bottom of, of, of whether there are some more reliable statistics and all the rest of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one to unpick. There's absolutely no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I've been fortunate enough to interview people, and and one of the people I interviewed was um, was an Italian lady who um, her son was killed in the crossfire, four year old son, and she was so grief stricken that she couldn't face going to the the. She lived on a farm in a mountain, couldn't face going to the funeral in the town below, so she stayed at home, kind of you know, in pieces. And while she was at home in the farm, um, four um, Moroccan soldiers came in and gang raped her. Yeah, I mean, sexual violence was an inherent part of war, and there was so little attention paid to Mm. it. It was so low down on the priority list of of any of the sort of uh, commanding officers of the war office. Um, If they were concerned about sex and sexual violence, it was through the prism of venereal disease. And if they were worried about venereal disease, it wasn't the Italian women who were contracting it. It wasn't the English women who are contracting it, it was the soldiers. And it was seen as one of the biggest causes of troop loss. So at any given time, one in 10 men would be on leave due to venereal disease. Wow. Um, That's amazing. The the rates that they're estimating are incredibly high. I'd be really careful with statistics. It's kind of impossible to know the exact statistics because um, not least because diagnostic procedures were still, you know, fairly, um, fairly new and unreliable, especially for gonorrhea. They were getting a little bit better at syphilis, but but, but, but not presumably so much you, you can you can quote these statistics as long as you have the caveat. Yeah, I think I think they give an indication a of just how worried everyone was. Right. Um, so even if they're not true, they certainly indicate the level of concern. Right. Um, and they also give, I think, a slight indication of of the epidemic of gonorrhea and syphilis in particular um, during this period. Um, other statistics, you know, one in 10 fighting men. Um, other statistics I've seen is, you know, 30 uh, percent suspected. But the other thing with the statistics is it's important to notice who they're talking about. So if the statistics come along mm. with sort of demonizing a particular population, my alarm bells start ringing and I start thinking, you know, is this a really a reliable, you know, medically informed, epidemiologically informed statement or is somebody hauling a number out of their ass to make a point about available women? Um, so yeah. I think there's a lot mixed up in there. Yeah, no, sure. But it, but it's, it's but, but, whether he's being alarmist, whether he's being concerned about his men, or whether he's being concerned about the women of Italy, it is indicative of a of of a huge level of of, of prostitution, which which that entire statement is totally shocking. I mean, whichever way you're looking at it, whether you're looking I mean, at uh, uh, the use of available, a uh, quote unquote, or whether you're looking at the the, the number, just you you know, through today's prism, one can't possibly or, or even. The prism of 1944. You can't think of anything. I don't think other than than what a what a truly horrific statistic. Can you? I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm I mean, not wrong I guess about I'm, that, am I? I'm not. I'm not particularly surprised by it because of the research that I do and how sure. inherently part of war prostitution is. Yeah. I think that people did become more aware of it in the Second World War. I also think the levels of civilian poverty were probably extremely high. And extremely high in southern Italy. Exactly, in southern Italy in particular. And so um, the the rise in survival sex work would have been striking, especially because it's also a hub for so many different troops um, kind of moving through that area. 
Um, so it's not surprising, but I think it says quite a lot about an immense hidden history of misery and work yes. during yes. the Second World War. Yes, 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 yes. Well, I, yeah, well, we're, we're absolutely on the same page on that. I can assure you. But but let's get back to 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 the Blackout Ripper because this is this is this is an extraordinary crime, and it's a cri- a crime of opportunism, isn't it? Because of the peculiar circumstances of London during the during the war. Yeah, um, it was, um, I mean, I, I dare I say an, an opportunistic uh, series of crimes. I mean, obviously, when there is no light, uh, makes it m- much easier to corner people, to get to get people, it, you know, people feel more vulnerable. But, um, you know, and the interesting thing is, I mean, about the series is obviously we're looking at Gordon Cummings and we're looking he's at... He's the murderer. He's he's the murderer. We're looking at... Well, we're not looking at him particularly, but we are looking at the crimes that he committed in London under these circumstances, but also at other crimes that were committed against women during the Blitz and how the Blitz right. was used as a sort of mask um, uh, for for crimes to occur um, and and how war also distracted... Uh, people from crimes against women that were occurring. I mean, even even within the ATS. So, so, I mean, what what kind of police force have we got at that stage? I mean, the the police, lots of people are joining up. They might be in the police, but they're still joining up now. So that means that the older policemen are staying there. They're still recruiting, of course, but. Police got their, you know, they've got other matters to worry about as well, such as sort of bombs falling. And obviously, the Blitz only lasts from September. 1940 to the middle of May 1941 and then there's a long period where there aren't bombs falling every single night and then there's other little kind of you know you've got the v1s from from middle of June 1944 and and later the v2s right pretty much right through to the end but there's there's a lot a lot of period where there aren't bombs falling every night so are the police still active is there still you know the met is still there and you know what and what are they doing and 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 how much does is the war getting in the way of the kind of normal routine stuff that police do so the police during the Second World War were definitely shorthanded. Um, you know, they were they were policing a city that had grown in size, especially grown in troop size, uh, as well as a lot of women and other people coming coming into the city for work, for excitement. Right. And where there's young people, there's going to, you know, and drink, there's going to be fights. And so you've got your hands it, full of that in a way that you wouldn't normally. So the police were definitely, definitely shorthanded. And in general, weren't huge fans of policing commercial sex or policing nightlife. Um, But in particular, during the Second World War, found it extremely difficult to police troops. So there was a a real sort of reluctance on the part of the Metropolitan Police to intervene in any situation that involved troops, unless it was egregious, because they knew that there'd be pushback and they just didn't they just didn't want to get involved. So they tended right. to turn blind eyes left, right and center to the misbehavior and mischief of troops in London. Um, and that kind of peppers through all of the files, their extreme reluctance to get involved in right. adjudicating these cases. Often they'd say that's a job for the military police. It's not us. Um, and so it kind of creates this atmosphere, especially in C and D division, which is what I call Piccadilly and Soho, because um, those are the two division uh, police divisions that would have been in charge. Um, it really does C have and a bit D. of C and D division. Yeah, so right. C division is south um, is sort of what we would today call Soho, and D division is what we would today call Fitzrovia, but at the time was known as North Soho. And those are the areas where the nightlife is really rocking. It's where the Rainbow Club is, where the American troops are stationed after 42. Right. Um, and it's where the bottle parties are. So the the sort of underground bars uh, that yep. don't have signs out front that just flick a light on when they're open to get around the Defense of the Realm Act regulations against sales of liquor, et cetera. Um, and so there's this real kind of hedonistic nightlife in the center of London at the precise time when the police are shorthanded and they are not particularly interested in policing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a perfect storm, isn't it? And then you've got, you know, you've got the, 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 the blackout and presumably compounded by smogs as well at certain points. I haven't noticed any sort of like direct connection between the, the London fogs and and sort of this kind of okay. discussion about misbehavior, but I'm sure it was part of it. I'm sure it was lending um, to this atmosphere of alterity, of liminality, of this sort of sense that, you know, all all bets are off, all rules are gone. 
Um, yeah. Life is cheap and so is the drink. And I think the other thing is about, you know, I mean, even if you wander around Fitzrovia now or, or, or Soho now, it's still, even today in a city of, you know, whatever it is, 11 million or whatever, uh, and when it's absolutely pollulating literally all times, you can still find yourself down alleyways and little streets where there's hardly anyone. And particularly late at night. I mean, I've done it at night. You're coming out of a bar or something and, you know, it's it's getting on and suddenly you're taking a little shortcut and suddenly you can hear the sort of echo of your steps down the street and you kind of feel you feel a little bit vulnerable. You can imagine how people must have felt, you know, in the middle of the war years when you've got the blackout there as well. And and the and the bomb shelters too. I mean, so um mm. one of the murders took place in a bomb shelter. In and, a bomb shelter. Yeah. In well, it, you know, in a yes. Um and um and and also you know, one of the things that we also look at is is just like how safe were women actually going into bomb shelters? And, you know, it's not just about the murders that occurred. It's about, you know, the other crimes The you know, there was there was a, a one former service woman who uh, talks about how she felt that she had probably saved her life by not going into a bomb shelter one night during the Blitz, hmm. because as she went to go down into the into the shelter, this very very creepy awful man kind of reached out at her, um, you know, and and she said she would rather stay on the surface than go down there, and you know, and so this there, there are lots of stories like this which I think we've we've missed, you know, because right we focus because on- we so got swept up in the story of the Blitz and Blitz spirit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We kind of felt we've, we 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 almost don't want to look at the darker side, do we? Because it's a story of defiance and the, the nation coming together. And so someone who's bef- uh, uh, opportunistically performing, you know, despicable crimes, that doesn't fit with the narrative, does it? No, exactly. And, you know, and again, I think a lot of what we're doing with this series is myth busting. I mean, historical myth busting is so important. Um, yes, And, always. you know, um, there were a lot of myths, obviously, around Jack the Ripper, and there were a lot of myths around the Blitz and how we as a nation responded um, and what it was like in the bomb shelters. You know, the old kind of go down to the bomb shelter and sing Roll Out the Barrel and, you know. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and that- everyone, everyone coming together, sort of communities coming together and, and, and people being neighborly and, and helping one another and all the rest of it and 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 any kind of crime jars against that doesn't it yeah absolutely absolutely so one of the cases that we look at is um a case where uh, a woman rachel dobkin was uh murdered by her husband it was a case of uh, domestic violence and this occurred in the east end um and um he buried her remains in um in 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 the rubble of a church that had been bombed, hoping that that the air raids, you know, the, the blitz would yep. be a cover for his crimes, um, you know, and so and again, that's that's a very opportunity. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? He was a violent man, and um, and they had been estranged, and she was left without any support for her son. The marriage was bad from the very outset. Right. Um, uh, she, you know, he abandoned her, um, and and she couldn't survive. She couldn't. She couldn't make ends meet, and he was legally obligated to pay her money, and he wasn't doing that. Um, and um, and he was violent, and he threatened her, and it was a case of coercive control. And eventually, he murdered her. Um, and of course, today we know much more about these types of things and and this type of violence. Um, but in the past, not so much. And and so, you know, the police did ask questions like, "What does she What does she do to deserve it?" You know, and and you know, kind of demonizing her for her own murder. Tell you what, we're going to take a short break, and uh, we'll talk some more when we come back. This episode is brought to you by the all new. Dacia Jogger, the award-winning seven-seater with plenty of space for family and friends. The car's made for adventure, which means that it can handle almost anything thrown at it. Do you reckon it could handle transporting a horde of Second World War uniforms and paraphernalia? You bet! Do you reckon it could handle packing up all your camping gear and extra kit for an extraordinary weekend at the UK's biggest and best Second World War festival? You better believe it! Now, I've got a special guest joining me today who's an expert at coping with all things going wrong. You may well have seen him performing next to the beer shack at We Have Waste Fest. It is, of course, 
my son and heir, Ned. Neddy, welcome to the podcast. Hello, lovely to finally be able to make an appearance. I'm very, very honoured. <laughs> well, you see, you won't be surprised to hear that there's been many a time I could have done with more space in my car. Something that Ned knows better than most. Because the problem is, when you drive a Second World War vintage Citroen, things aren't always that straightforward. Giving the lads from the Village Cricket Club a lift to away games isn't really viable. Isn't that right, Neddy? Yeah, honestly, tell me about it. I'm kind of any car that's better than kind of being kicked out kind of just outside my house by the watercrest beds for the village cricket lads instead of me is a, a much better option. We're done with the Citroen. You can't ever say that. You know how much I love the Citroen and the Citroen is with us forever. I'm kidding. But when it comes to going to cricket matches um, and when it goes to going to Second World War festivals, clearly something with just a little bit more space is going to be a massive advantage. Now, Ned, there was that time where we were all going to the cricket match. We had, I think there were five of us all ready to go. We had loads and loads of kit. Um, everyone had their own kit bag. And you drew the short straw. You couldn't fit in the Citroen. And so you bravely volunteered to cycle to the cricket match. I know. I kind of felt I ought to, as son of the chairman. I um, had to cycle <laughs> 10 miles in the in the Wiltshire countryside where we live, lots of hills, and I got to the ground, all hot, all sweaty, knackered, and then had to open the bowling. So kind of any opportunity now to have a car that I can actually get a lift in would be the way. Yeah. Okay, I'm hearing you loud and clear. So only take the Citroen when it's just the two of us, but when we've got half a cricket team to take, what we need is a Dacia jogger. Well, listen, thank you, Ned. Thanks for being able to handle literally anything. And if you were a car, you would definitely be the all-new Dacia Jogger. Visit dacia.co.uk to find out more. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and with Hallie Rubenhall and Professor Julia Late. And we're talking about crimes against women in London in the Second World War. And God, it's it's um it's a it's uncomfortable, isn't it, thinking about all this? Um, you know, I'm sitting here being a bloke, and you know, I kind of you know, all those uh, the, the opportunism of these despicable characters in a time of a blackout and a time mm. where I don't know you, you you expect more, don't you, from your from your civilian population? It's it's uh, it's it really it's really making me think. I have to say, I think the other thing as well that's important to point out is that a lot of the men who perpetrated this violence, yeah, I guess they were despicable, but they weren't extraordinary, um, and that this violence was quotidian and unfortunately accelerated by the the trauma of war. And, you know, we talk a lot, we're much more aware now of the way that that war um, affects the mental health of soldiers. Um, but it but even though they weren't as aware of it in the Second World War, it, of course, did. And you see so many cases of men who are fighting and then, of course, coming back to London on, on leave and they're messed up. They are, right. you know, they, they, they get drunk. They have underlying traumas. They live in an environment where violence against women is quotidian, where they see lots of examples of their commanding officers and their superiors buying sex, encouraging others to buy sex. Right. And, you know, all too often, it's it's not the sort of despicable maniac who's perpetrating this violence. Right. It's the average soldier. And I'm in no way suggesting that every soldier did this in any way, shape or form. No, of course not. But it was absolutely part of the culture, right. um, whether we like it or not. And, yeah. a, and, and quite a number of the crimes you've been investigating and looking into, they are just these ordinary soldiers that are coming back and, and losing the plot. Well, it's it's also a case of, I mean, so we look at, for example, um, uh, a couple of ATS women um, and uh, a woman called Lillian Welsh who was uh, knocked off her bicycle and murdered deliberately by a man driving a truck um, back from a base one evening as she was driving as she was riding home, and um, that was just his thing. 
He liked to knock women off their bikes. And because, again, you know, because, you know, you put a man in uniform and suddenly he's got an extra layer of defense around him during a period Mm. of war because he's unassailable, you know, because it's really important that we don't do down our boys. You know, we're in a national crisis. We all have to pull together. And so these things are allowed to, you know, people become a little bit more incredulous about the crimes actually taking place. Um, And they're more apt to not believe the victim, but, you know, to, to, and and not to question the man in uniform also, because it's bad. It's bad for the nation. It's bad for everybody. So a lot of people are just getting away with it. Yeah. A lot of, well, you know, we did, uh, we were able to find cases where they didn't get away with it. Um, uh, But, you know, there were a lot of really, you know, kind of terrible consequences. I mean, also, so one of the other things that we look at is, you know, talking about consequences and and what it was like and the repercussions of all of this. Um, We, we also look at um, the, the children who were born um, to white British women who had relationships with um, African-American GIs who were here and what happened to their children, the so-called Brown babies. Um, And, um, you know, I mean, uh, racial aggression is another type of violence and unfortunately you know african-american gis who came to this country experienced a a type of of freedom especially if they were from the southern states and subject to jim crow laws here it was it was quite liberating um but then also they were subject obviously on their basis to to um to their own um racial segregation laws that you know in many cases we're quite uncomfortable reinforcing in this country but then the children who were born to these relationships i mean we interviewed two of them and they were caught between this terrible this terrible place where they didn't feel like they belonged anywhere. They didn't feel like they were accepted in this country. And they didn't feel that they were accepted by their father's families in the United States either. And so this is another this is another legacy of a type of violence as well. Um that, you know, I mean it's it's fascinating to look at all of these things, all of these sub-stories, all of these things that happened as a result of of the war on the home front here. Um, you know, it's just kind of endless amount of stories. And so many like these, these injustices tend to go under the radar. No, absolutely. So the Ripper, but to talk about the, the Blackout Ripper. Who who were the women who were, were murdered by him then? He went on a killing spree. Um, so he actually murdered four and attacked um, two others. Um, he tried to murder them unsuccessfully. Um, and they were... Um, the women who he killed were um, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe, um, and a woman called Doris Joane. And then he attacked two other women who survived called Catherine McCulhey and Margaret Haywood. Um, what they had in common, a, a number of them were sex workers, except for Evelyn Hamilton, who was, she was a chemist. Um and she was an independent woman, and she just happened to be out as a, at a Maison Lyons that evening, dining alone, when he was out on the prowl looking for a woman who was by herself in the dark, um, you know, in in the middle of, of the blackout. So what do you do? She, she's in the in the Lion's house, Lion's corner shop or whatever, Maison Leon, and then and then leaves. He follows her, and, yeah. and what happens? Yeah, and he attacks her, and murders her in a in um, a bomb shelter. So there's no sexual motive for this. Um, there may be a sexual motive. I mean, in the same way that you know, I like to say with Jack the Ripper, it was uh, a, a crime. It was a sexual. It was a crime that was motivated against women. It was a, a sex crime in that it was a gender crime without wanting to go into too many details, because one of the things that we were very careful to do in, in this particular podcast is, is not really to go into a lot of the details about the murders, because we don't need to. I mean, there's actually so much about the, about these murders out there. If you want to look them up, they're on Wikipedia, they're you know, all the gory details. Um, certainly with all of these crimes, one of the things that was apparent was... Um, overkill so which demonstrates a certain type of rage 
a kind of sexual extreme mo- violence, extreme violence, a sexually motivated rage. Wow, and he's he's caught, is he eventually? Yes, he is caught. Um, the rather annoying thing is that he's he's caught, but he is only tried for the murder of Evelyn Oatley, um, and um, and not the others. And he may have killed others as well. I mean, there's there's a, a big question over how many um, others um, came before. Um, because there was some evidence there were women who, wherever he was, you know, wh- wherever he was based, wherever he particularly was. And so he was an Air Force cadet. And again, because he's wearing the uniform, you know, people tend to not, that's not the first thing you're thinking about when you encounter right. a man in uniform. Yeah. Because you think, oh, he must be outstanding. He's doing his bit. That's right. Um, I mean, he was, he without going into too much detail about him, I mean, he was a, he was a very unpleasant character. And also, you know, he was, um, he liked to pretend that he was of some sort of um, aristocratic or gentry background. And, you know, he had this whole persona and you know, he stole money. He embezzled money in order to um, uh, support this this lifestyle that he had. And and the RAF obviously really appealed to him because of its its social status. You, I mean, you, you mentioned... Evelyn, who was in the in the in the lion's house, having her mining her own peas and keys and being a chemist. But these other women, I mean, I mean, who are they? I mean, you were saying the others are sex workers. I mean, but 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 who are these people? What's their story? Well, that's that's um, that's a very good question, and in fact, that's what that's what we're we're talking about um, in the podcast. I mean, we follow the lives of all of these women as much as we possibly can, as much as the records allow, and and what actually is what actually comes through. And what is so fascinating is that it's very, you know, we can use these women as a as a lens to really tell the story of women in the first half of the 20th century and what their experiences were. So um, Evelyn Oatley, whose life I find just so fascinating and so haunting, um, grew up in, in Yorkshire, in Keithley. And in mm. fact, she was the daughter of uh, a German immigrant. So her mother was German and who faced um, a, a tremendous amount of, of Germanophobia in the First World War and was right in the center of some local attacks on the German community in Keithley. Um, and um, she came from a broken home. People were like to try to find a way of escaping from their very unpleasant circumstances. And and often, I think, cinema and theatre was the way in which people did. People did escape during, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s from, from, from their lives. And, you know, she was, became obsessed with uh, glamour and the West End and film performance and eventually ended up uh, going to... Black well, you can understand or... that. Anyone who's wanting to sort of better their lives, the glamour of the silver screen oh, and all absolutely. the rest of it, the, the the dazzling lights and all the rest of it, of course, it's it's, it's like a sort of a moth to a light bulb, oh, isn't a- it? Absolutely. And I think there's there's a certain amount of pathos in it. There's a certain amount of when you, you know, you know that these people escaped into the cinemas to get away from their lives and, and how grueling and difficult their lives were. And, and, and you know, Evelyn Oatley's life was was that her background was from you know she was from a broken home she was from a you know uh, an area which was poor and uh and you know she worked in a in a mill for a time um and you know and so she went to blackpool and uh and she met um the man who would become her husband um harold and Mm -hmm. he was a poultry farmer and it's such a weird pairing; these two people, these these mm. personalities are so. And how did she end up being a chemist in? Oh London? no! This was this is the, I'm talking about Evelyn Oatley. Evelyn Hamilton. Oh. Evelyn, Evelyn Hamilton was the chemist. Evelyn Hamilton was the chemist, and Evelyn Sorry. Hamilton. Beg your pardon. Yeah. So uh, uh, yes, they're two Evelyns. Actually, in fact, in the in the review of the podcast in um in in the Radio Times. You know, the, the reviewer said something like, well, this is definitely a Second World War story because there are two Evelyns and there are two Yorises. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay. So now, no, okay. So, 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 so this Evelyn is not the chemist. It's the other Evelyn. And she no, ends up, from, yeah. but this is Evelyn from, from Keith of the German mother. And she ends up with marrying a poultry farmer. She still ends up, marrying, up in London. Well, she ends up marrying a poultry farmer, but like their marriage is so bizarre. So like he is just, he says, look, you know, you want to go and live like, glamorous life in london i'll stay here on a poultry farm you go to piccadilly you go work in the windmill club 
which is what she wanted to do. And, or at least she said that she did that. And, and Julia, do you want to tell us a little bit about the windmill club during, during, uh, during the second world, during the 1930s, 1940s? It's such a great story. Yeah. I mean, these, these spaces like the windmill club become just the center of all kinds of imagination and they're, you know, for racy performances and kind of cabaret style performances. So they're the, they're the the kind of far end of the music hall, just as music yeah. halls are starting to kind of spruce themselves up and become family friendly. Um, places like the Windmill Theater are, are becoming a kind of adult only entertainment venues. Right, but it, but it's um, not nudity, is it? It's it's kind of stockings and legs and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, for the most part. Um, but it, it's 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 very very racy for the time, and they they're they're constantly in danger of losing their license, of course. Mm. Um, but they they really become. Um, places where where people like Evelyn Oatley would would dream of of working and performing because they're the they, you know they're the because you might meet the, some rich bloke who's going to be your ticket to... that's absolutely part of it the idea that you might achieve some kind of social mobility um through through meeting Get some rich bloke and become a film star yeah i think there's those dreams but i also just think that they were um a lot more fun to work in than poultry farms <laughs> Yeah, I guess it d- depends what your vibe is, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> Probably. Um, I think, you know, because we talk a lot, I mean, I, I work a lot about, um, I, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Evelyn Oatley did eventually end up um, selling sex, at least part time. And um, I, I work a lot on these topics and there's a lot of conversations about, you know, women being, you know, forced by poverty or lack of other choices into into selling sex. And that's absolutely valid. Um, but I think we also need to make space for the fact that women, you know, had dreams and ambitions of their own and sometimes saw this kind of labor, like sexualized labor or sex work as a, a, way, a way to achieve those dreams um, and enjoyed that kind of work. Um, and they were drawn to the excitement of the West End, especially during the war. Um, you know, these, you know, the Americans called them good time girls. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the British police called them amateur prostitutes. Right. Um, in a, a slightly less euphemistic. Um, but turn but of it's phrase. not just the windmill club, is it? Is the bag of nails is another famous one, isn't Assaulted it? There's a whole, almond. Yeah, there's, the a load, there's a load of them, aren't there? And then yeah. there's the more kind of slightly up market uh, marketplaces. Like the you know um, the Criterion and yeah, yeah. the Cafe Royale, Cafe Royale and the Cafe de Paris and all that kind of stuff. Um, but but was she murdered because she was working at the Windmill Club, or was she murdered because she was walking back late at night and it was dark? Yeah, she was. Well, she was she was murdered murdered because she was available um, and she was out on the street and, um, and because that- you're working at a club like that, which means necessarily you're going to be walking back. To what your digs early in the morning? Well, no, night. she was. She was also. She was also a sex worker. She was also selling sex. So yeah, but, was, but I thought from what Julie was saying that that she was doing it to certain clients at the club. She's not like standing on street corners or something. Well, well I mean, she probably was doing both. Yeah. Um. And, and that and that's the the other thing about about commercial sex is women would move in and out of different aspects of it. So sometimes they'd solicit on the street. Sometimes they'd pick up men in bars. Sometimes they'd take them back to their own furnished rooms. Sometimes the men would pay for a hotel. And there's kind of no uh, set pattern. But my understanding is Evelyn Oatley had picked up Cummings as a client. Yeah. So she was murdered in, in, her, in furnished her own room. Yes, in her own room. And so part of the story, I mean, it's a really good question in terms of what made Evelyn and Doris and, and the others... Uh, with the exception of the very opportunistic murder of the other Evelyn in the bomb shelter. Um, what made the other women so vulnerable to Cummings is that it, they're, they're soliciting and they're selling sex at a time when it's becoming more and more dangerous. And that's kind of for two main reasons. One is because it's being criminalized, it's being forced underground, um, and women are forced to solicit um, alone, they're forced to work alone, um, there's nobody looking out for them. There's no sort of form of public surveillance. Um, nobody knew that Evelyn had taken Cummings back. Um, yeah, there was nobody there. Um, but, but Julie, if you're if you're if you're you know you're Evelyn or, or or some other girl at that time, I mean, and, you, and you're thinking, okay, this is this is the route I'm going to go down. 
do you think you're aware that the, the, the danger levels have been heightened because of the circumstances of the war, because of the lack of interest from the police, because they've got their hands full, because of the number of servicemen, because it's dark, because, because, because? I mean, do, do you think that's part of the calculation? Yes, I do. And I think and do, and do you think that's part of the allure in a funny sort of way? No, I don't think it's part of the allure. I think women were I mean, they were doing it because they wanted to be part of that that sort of space potentially, but mostly they were doing it for money and they were making really difficult decisions about how they were going to make money at a time when they were often the only ones keeping themselves. Right. So they didn't have anybody giving them money. Yeah, they wanted they wanted. So, money. so for most people, they're still doing it out of necessity rather than because they want to. Yeah. I mean, I think I think we have to be careful with like the kind of binary there, because you can you can choose to sell sex in, as, as a choice amongst other worse choices. Um, yeah. And so, okay, I, yeah. yeah. So I think it's important to like, I suppose, you know, I suppose I'm, think, I suppose I'm thinking about all those Italian women who really have no other alternative ways of, 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 of feeding themselves. Yeah. You know, and that's outside one of the Naples reasons... in late 1943, for example, the only way they're going to get food is by 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 prostituting themselves in return for food from 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 allied troops. Yeah, and I think that's why it's really, really important to draw a difference between sex work as um, a form of labor that women do in alternative to another form of labor, which may not pay them anything or much, and survival sex work, which is really, really different. Yes. Um, And and, and so I think in the case of Evelyn Oatley, she's she's doing sex work. She's, She's selling sex because she wants money, but there's a lot of evidence in her case that she really also loved the West End, that she loved the, the culture there, that she loved mm-hmm. the atmosphere there. Right. Um, and probably and wasn't going to go back to her chicken farmer husband. Yeah, no, definitely well, not. She, she goes back every now and then, but she never stays. But she also, sometimes she brings she brings another man back. I mean, she has other relationships with other Blimey. men okay. uh, and uh, takes them back to the chicken farm with her husband, who doesn't seem to mind. Yeah. And and so the the other thing is, you know, you asked about whether or not she would have been aware of the dangers. And there's a fair amount of evidence that that she and others were part of a of a community of of people. So there would have been people, you know, giving them tips, warning them about dangers. But there's only so much you can do in, a, in an atmosphere that makes it illegal to work together. So the safest thing to do would have been for two women to solicit together, bring men home together and watch out for each other. But from 1885 on, that's illegal. You can't you right. can't work together if you're selling sex. And that continues to be illegal into the present day. And that is like the simple fact that renders so many of these women vulnerable to violence because there's no that's one amazing. there. That's amazing. I never knew no that. no one in the room. That's extraordinary. What a, what a, what a terrible decision. And yes. and in terms of, I mean, do do we? I mean, presumably we do have pretty detailed crime statistics for London in in the nineteen forties, do we? I mean, you know, I mean, how much, how bad was it, and and how much did the crime rate, particularly of of kind of the murders and rape of women, in London in the nineteen early part of the nineteen forties, how how much did that climb? We don't actually have super reliable statistics. Do we not? I'm surprised. Um, I thought thought like I thought that they would be there. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is it's a mess, right? So states of total war aren't yeah, particularly great for civilian bookkeeping, right. um, and this is this is this is one of the ways in which it, you know, yes, there obviously the police, but, but there's, the police there's chiefs indicative are still figures report. or indicative trends, right? There are dic- indicative trends, and I think overall it doesn't go up severely, but you have to remember the enormous amount of underreporting, right. not of murder. But of of violence against the person. Yeah. So I think so many of these are being perpetrated by men in uniform. You know, women know all too well what's going to happen to them if they allege a crime against a man in uniform. I mean, it's it's hard enough. You know, the 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 sort of conviction rates for sexual offenses are abysmally low in this period. And yeah, before I'm sure. It. Yeah. It's hard enough to get a conviction in peacetime against a civilian man getting a conviction in wartime against a, a, a man in uniform, you know, wi- yeah. women know the score. They're not going to put themselves through it. And I think there's actually one point, is it Evelyn who says, you know, she's getting, she's getting assaulted left, right and center by angry, you know, angry clients. And at one point somebody says, you know, well, why didn't you go and report him? And, and she's just, why didn't, like, she just basically laughs it off. You know why I didn't go and report. Him. Exactly. Mm. Well, both of you, that's, that's, Absolutely fascinating and has given me um, uh, lots to think about, I have to say. Goodness. Um, but, uh, Julia, there's one thing that you mentioned that we haven't actually talked about, and that's Regulation 33B. 
So what is Regulation 33B? So Regulation 33B is part of the Defense of the Realm Act, that kind of omnibus legislation that that comes through during the war. And there was another version of it, DORA, as it's often called in the First World War as well. Um, And 33B, I think, is just a really meaningful indication of just how worried everyone was about venereal disease. And it came about largely because of Canadian, um, American, Australian, and New Zealand troops, but most of all American troops, who were coming to London and catching sexually transmitted infections. And the commanding officers of those troops insisted that it was the fault of English women, that their good um, innocent boys have, of course, Colson never... boys from Ohio. Yeah, okay. Oklahoma had never seen the like of the debauchery in London, and they yeah. just couldn't control themselves. They were being seduced, and that they were they were catching diseases. And so, there's a lot of pressure put on the military in London. There's a lot of pressure put on the Met to try to control these women. And of course, there's very little that they they can actually do other than criminalizing sex workers. Um, and so, 33B comes into force, I believe, in 1942, and it uh, it states that um, if a man or a soldier contracts a sexually transmitted infection, and he he's then asked to report the names of who he thought he got it from. To the, to the to the doctor, and the doctor would then report those names to the um, medical officer of health, who would then engage in a kind of form of criminalized contact tracing, finding finding the suspected uh, infectants, and compelling them to undergo treatment for venereal disease. And what's really striking about this is, from 1917 on, Britain had ostensibly operated a voluntary system of venereal disease control, right? So they they said, no, 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 it's not right. We should we, we should never criminalize this. It doesn't work. Um, but they completely go back on that during the Second World War, and they start uh, in criminalizing people who are quote unquote spreading venereal disease. But of course, you can probably place your bets on who were the targets of this legislation. It wasn't the men giving venereal disease to women. It was the women who theoretically were giving venereal disease to men. And they had their medical histories revealed. If they refused to comply, they were dragged into court. Wow. Um, and it was it, it, it was a really, um, really quite shocking, actually. And, and a lot of people at the time spoke out against it. Lawyers, civil rights um, campaigners, mm-hmm. feminists. Um, but they, they, you know, kind of fell on deaf ears because uh, the, the war effort was more important than anything but, but, else. But who was instigating? Was this, a, was this the British government or was this pressure from the U.S. government? This was the war office being pressured by the U.S. military. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, extreme wow, that, that, amounts of pressure. That really jars, doesn't it? It yeah. really sits uncomfortably. Goodness. Yeah. Well, listen, both of you, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Really good luck with the podcast. Fascinating, thought-provoking stuff. And um, obviously your series is out now, The Bad Women, The Blackout River. And um, and, and listen, thank you both. I mean, really, gosh, that's just been really, really, really interesting. As I say, loads to think about there. And loads to think about for me And as I try and sort of pick through some of this in the uh, blighted war in Italy. But anyway, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Hi, Ruben Hald and Julia Late. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. 